Let's worship the Lord by hearing him speak to us through his word. Would you stand with me and take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, 19 through 21. Philippians chapter 1, 19 through 21. Listen to the word of the Lord. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know That through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are uh, so glad you are our King Eternal. We are so glad that you have called us out of the world to be your set-apart people. And Lord, now as we are here gathered to hear you speak to us through your word, this testimony of Paul is humbling challenging and convicting for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain Lord we know Paul was beheaded he lived this out but he lived it out far before he was martyred he lived it out for when he accepted you as Savior and Lord he died in you and the same is true for us And so, Lord, may you use our lead pastor, may you use your word, may your spirit apply it to our hearts so that these uh, words that we've read are not merely something that we read about in the Bible and shut it and go on with our lives, but actually we are challenged and moved to live this way, for we are dead in you, but alive to live for you. We pray these things. In the name of our living Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. It's both a privilege and a burden to stand here before you and preach God's word, to proclaim it Sunday after Sunday, and yet today I feel the burden of it a little more simply because of the text that we are approaching here as we continue in our series through the book of Philippians. None other than a personal testimony by the Apostle Paul. And so as we continue our series, I I begin with this question for myself, but for all of us here this morning. And it's a simple question, but I think it's a profound question that we ponder. And that is, what are you living for? What are you living for? Now hang on to that question. We'll come back to it in a minute. In 1993, when fishing in St. Mary's Glacier, Colorado, Bill Jaraki got his leg pinned under a boulder. Snow was in the forecast, and he was without a jacket, a pack, and communication. And so in a desperate attempt to survive, he used his flannel shirt as a tourniquet. And then he used his fishing knife to cut off his own leg at the knee joint. He used hemostats from his fishing kit to clamp the bleeding arteries. And then he crab walked to his truck and drove himself to the hospital. Later, in 2003, Aaron Ralston had a very similar experience. 
While hiking in Utah, a boulder fell and pinned his right arm. After various attempts to free himself, on the sixth day of being stuck there, he finally amputated his right forearm with a dull multi-tool knife. Exhausted and dehydrated, he then rappelled down a 60-foot cliff and hiked eight miles before finding a Dutch family who guided him to a rescue helicopter. He eventually made it to the hospital and survived. And most of you know he actually he wrote a book about the ordeal called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. What an appropriate title that is. So what do these two stories teach us? Well, aside from providing some, some basic tips for adventure recreation, they teach us that people will, or most people, will do remarkable things to live. And that brings us back to the question I began with. A very important question that we must answer. What are you living for? Now, in this short life, while most people will do remarkable things in order to live, we still don't know how long we will live. So what are you living for in this short life of ours here on this earth? Well, writing from a Roman prison, a chained man tells us about a life that's worth living. He summarizes it in this most profound verse, verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1, when he says, For me, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible, and for good reason. A life worth living is centered on the life of Christ. Now, unfortunately, our English Bibles can't quite capture the the full beauty and expression of this verse. There's no verb in the Greek, and so we usually just supply it with this word, is. To live is Christ. And while that is certainly true, other verbs could be supplied to describe a life that is worth living. To live rejoices in Christ. To live depends on Christ. To live magnifies Christ. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in the two preceding verses before this summary statement of his. You see, for Paul, Christ is everything in his journey. In in the application of this profound verse, it appears with the little phrase at the very beginning, for me. For me. You see, for Paul, Christ was everything. Christ was his treasure. Christ was his all-consuming passion in life. But what about for you? How would you complete this sentence? For me, to live is what? What word, what phrase would you put in that blank? And the list of possibilities is endless, is it not? But don't miss the point of it all. No one leaves that sentence blank. Everyone finishes it with something. Now, that doesn't mean everyone actually writes something in their notes. But in our minds, we put something in it. It often gets filled with cheap substitutes like money, sex, power, beauty, possessions, family, career, entertainment. And perhaps that's why so many people today have so little joy in their journey. These are all good gifts from God, but they are gifts from God to be used for his glory. But when we turn those gifts into our idols, they will suck the joy right out of our journey in life. 
Instead, you want to spend your life on something that not only brings you joy now, but will also matter for eternity, and that is none other than Christ. So let's see what Paul has to say about a life that's worth living. Notice, number one, a life worth living rejoices in Christ consistently. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi from prison in Rome. And up to this point, he has been telling the Philippians about his present situation in prison as he awaits his trial before Caesar. In the words of one commentator, Paul is surrounded in a sea of troubles, shackled to a soldier, confined to house arrest, charged with inciting civil unrest, a capital crime. He awaits his day in court. And even though Paul is facing such difficult circumstances in prison, he writes in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And according to verse 18, this caused Paul to rejoice. Why? Well, as we learned last Sunday, anytime, anywhere, the Christ is proclaimed and the gospel is advanced, it's a reason to rejoice. It's like that old Dale Carnegie saying, two men looked out from prison bars, one saw the mud, the other saw the stars. So here's the Apostle Paul. And he's looking out from his prison bars in Rome, but he doesn't see the mud. He sees the stars. He sees Jesus Christ, the bright morning star of Revelation 22, being proclaimed through his difficult circumstances, and that gives him reason to rejoice. But now Paul turns his eyes to the future, and he says at the end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, that is remarkable. And once again, I remind you, Paul does not know what's going to happen in the future as far as his circumstances are concerned. All he knows is that he's going to stand trial before a Roman court where Caesar himself will render the verdict. And either he will set Paul free or he will sentence Paul to death. Paul does not know what the outcome will be, and yet he declares... I will rejoice. Now, don't miss what Paul's doing here. He is actually tying his present circumstances with the future circumstances, and he's tying them together with this theme of joy. And since the effect of his current imprisonment is that Christ is being proclaimed, Paul says, in that I rejoice. And as he looks ahead to the pending outcome of his trial, he can still declare, I will rejoice. In other words, Paul is showing us that a life worth living rejoices in Christ consistently no matter what. Whether in present difficult circumstances or in future unknown circumstances, we can still rejoice in Christ You rejoice in what you value, and when you rejoice in the midst of trials, it shows people that your treasure isn't anything in this world. Everything can still fall apart, and you can still rejoice. Why? Because Christ is your treasure. As one author notes, the prospect of Paul's trial drove him to prayer, not to despair. 
Which brings us to the second characteristic of a life worth living. First of all, Paul shows us that a life worth living rejoices in Christ consistently. And second, Paul now shows us that a life worth living depends on Christ completely. This is why Paul can rejoice consistently in Christ. No matter what his present circumstances may be or will be in the future. Why? Because he's depending on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ completely. Look what he writes again in verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, most Bible scholars, commentators, actually believe Paul is quoting the Old Testament character of Job. And he's quoting... Job, as he delivers that incredible statement of trust that you read in Job chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, where Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That is God. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. So what is Paul so confident in? What is he confident is going to happen now in his life? Paul says, I know. This will turn out for my what? He says, for my deliverance. But this begs the question, what does that mean? Because this word for deliverance is also translated as salvation. In fact, in some of your Bibles, depending on what version you have, it's actually, the word is salvation instead of deliverance. Because it can be translated either way. But this verse here, Philippians, is not about forgiveness of sins. Listen to me. We are not saved by what we suffer for Christ. We are saved by what Christ suffered for us. And so salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, plus or minus nothing. So what then does Paul mean by this word deliverance or salvation? Well, it seems best to understand that Paul's talking about either eventual deliverance from his imprisonment by an innocent verdict, which allows him to continue to live, or ultimate deliverance through death into the very presence of Christ himself. The ambiguity is the very point. Paul is saying, listen, whether I see the light of day again as a free man, or whether I end up being executed by the Caesar, I will be delivered either way. And in that, I will rejoice. In other words, Paul is saying one way or another, either by life or by death, I know I am heading towards deliverance. This is actually Paul's way of simply restating what he writes in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is Paul's confidence. This is his confidence in the sovereignty of God concerning his deliverance. But here's what I want you to see. is Paul's dependence on the sufficiency of Christ as he waits for his deliverance. Now, let's be honest. You see, this is where it gets rather nitty-gritty in life. Waiting on God's deliverance, whether it's waiting on his eventual deliverance in your life 
or his ultimate deliverance at the end of your life can be hard at times. Super hard. So how do we do this? Well, like Paul, you depend on the sufficiency of Christ by relying on the prayers of the saints in the spirit of Christ or the help of the spirit. Notice this. First of all, rely on the prayers of the saints. Rely on the prayers of the saints. So don't think your prayers don't matter. They do. Do you realize that God uses the prayers of the saints to strengthen his people? So don't sell your prayers short on behalf of somebody else. I love the fact that Paul was never too big to ask for prayer. He was never so confident that he didn't fully realize that he was helpless without the very help of God. And so throughout Paul's letters, you find this theme. He begs, he pleads with other believers in these various churches that he's planted to pray for him. After all, James reminds us that the prayers of the righteous are what? Are powerful and effective. Remember the... Remember Lot? In the Old Testament, Lot was delivered from the destruction of Sodom. Why? Because his uncle Abraham prayed for him. And Paul knew he would be delivered because the Philippians were praying for him. And even though they did not have any political influence, they had no military strength, they didn't have any financial resources to help Paul, what did they have? They had the supernatural power of prayer at their disposal. And this is why you need to be a participating member of a local church. Listen, there will be times in your life when your hope of deliverance will be directly tied to your confidence that the saints are praying for you. Saints just being a word for people who are in Christ. Christians, other believers, the family of God. And so here's the question. Are you in community with other believers in the church? And here's a good way to measure it. Is there anyone in a difficult situation that is resting their hopes on the fact that you are praying for them? So don't count your prayers short. Don't sell them short. Listen, rely on the prayers of all these saints here at LifeBridge. Ask them to pray for you when you're going through a situation, a difficulty, a trial, or whatever. And I'm not saying broadcast it to the whole church, but maybe there's a handful of people, especially if you're part of a grow group, where you share intimately, hey, here's what's going on in my life, and I'm struggling. I need some help here. Would you pray for me? And then if you say, yes, I will, be sure you pray. So Paul relies on the prayers of the saints, the sufficiency of Christ. But number two, rely on the help of the Spirit of Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will give you everything you need to wait for God's deliverance. This word help can also be translated as provision or supply. It's a word that describes generous, lavish, sufficient resources. And by the way, that's exactly what we get with the Spirit of Christ who dwells within every believer in Christ at the moment of their salvation. So what Paul is saying is something like this. 
Listen, the reason I am so confident in my deliverance is because the saints keep praying and the Spirit keeps supplying everything I need to handle what I'm facing right now. As one commentator writes, God not only rules our lives from his throne, but he also sustains our lives from within. Here's the truth. The hand of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. God's spirit will lavishly supply everything you need to face what you're facing and to do so courageously, consistently, and even rejoicing. Paul is showing us that through his own testimony that a life worth living is a life that is all about Christ. A life worth living rejoices in Christ. And a life worth living depends on Christ. And now Paul, he brings it to a crescendo here in number three. And he says a life worth living magnifies Christ courageously. Paul now is revealing to us his motives for rejoicing in Christ and depending on Christ. It's so that he will now magnify Christ through his life. Look what he writes in verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope. Eager expectation. It simply means to lean forward and to watch something with an extended, outreached head. It's, it's this. It's like what, what you do when we used to be able to go to the K and watch the Royals play. And Alex Gordon would hit a ball into the right field corner, and what does everybody do in the stands that's paying attention? They get stand up, and they, is it foul or is it fair? And they do this with eager expectation, wanting to know the outcome. And so here is Paul, he's, he's looking into his future, and he's saying, my head is stretched out, and I have this eager expectation, I have this confident hope, and I hope you're asking, what, what for? Well, Paul tells us what for in the rest of verse 20, look at it. He says, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so here Paul is saying, as I look to the future, my one great hope more than anything else is that I will magnify Christ, that I will not be ashamed, but that I will be a faithful witness for Christ. And this is amazing because what Paul doesn't say here, he doesn't say his one great hope is to get out of jail. So that he can escape his pain and suffering of imprisonment. No, Paul's one great ambition is what? Even in prison, it is to magnify Christ courageously, whether by life or by death. Well, you've got to ask the question, right? How can, how can we not ask the question, well, what is my and what is your supreme goal in life? What is your eager expectation and hope in life? Because Paul is showing us that the supreme goal of a life worth living is to magnify the worth of Jesus Christ. And this word honored, it's translated as exalted or magnify. And what does magnify mean? 
Well, it just means to enlarge something, to to make it bigger than it is or greater than it is. And so the question is, well, how can you make the greatest person in the world like Jesus greater? I mean, after all, how can you magnify Christ in your body? After all, Jesus is already great, is he not? So how can you make him greater than he already is? Well, there are two types of magnification that you're familiar with. You have the microscope and you have a telescope. And a microscope makes the little seem big. And that's not the picture here that Paul is giving to us. A telescope, on the other hand, makes the actually big loom big. And this is what Paul is saying. Your task, my task as a Christian, is to bring the greatness of who Jesus truly is to the forefront so people can see him better and clearer. For example, if you look up at the stars tonight, some of them are ginormous. Some stars, they say, are 12,000 times larger than the sun. And yet, when you look at, up at them, they just kind of twinkle and you can barely see them. So if you want to see them better, what do you look through? A telescope. And when you look through a telescope, what happens? The stars all of a sudden are magnified before you. And when you enlarge them, it seems like you brought those stars a billion light years away. You brought them closer and now you can see them better. And to most people in the world, Jesus Christ is what? He is just nothing more than 2,000 years in the past. He's in the distant. He is far away. He is irrelevant. He's even unapproachable. That is until you show up in Christ and Christ in you. And when now people look at your life, Christ is either magnified, that is, he's brought closer and made clearer to them, or he is, if I can use this word, minified. He's made smaller and distant. And Paul says, listen, I want the courage to magnify Christ through my body. My one ambition is that Christ will be exalted, that he will be honored, that he will be magnified through me. This is why Paul exhorts us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So this is Paul's ambition. This is his one supreme goal or ambition in life, to magnify Christ. And I would plead with you that this ought to be our ambition. And we can unfold it in two ways, a positive and negatively. Let this be your ambition. First of all, may I never let Christ down in my life so that I will not be ashamed. You see, unlike our culture today, Paul had a very high view of shame. When he says in verse 20, and it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. You see, in context, Paul's referring to when he will stand trial before Caesar and he gives his defense of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want to wilt under the pressure. He doesn't want to be ashamed of Christ. He wants to give a worthy defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But understand, Paul's ambition to live without shame was not about avoiding personal humiliation. 
Listen, he's already experienced much of that in his life in ministry, and he will continue to do so. In fact, he will plead with us to have that humiliating mind of Christ in us in chapter 2. And so rather, Paul's concern was greater than just this desire to avoid embarrassment before others. Paul did not want to be embarrassed, more importantly, before God. You see, you can be a great success before people and a horrible failure before God. Do you realize that? Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so Paul knew, he had this perspective in mind. He knew that there was coming a day in which he would stand before Christ to give an account of his life, and he did not want to be ashamed on that day. Instead, Paul wanted to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so like Paul, may our ambition, may your personal ambition be that we will never let Christ down in our lives. And then second, may I always lift Christ up in my life so that Christ will be honored. Paul states the second part of his ambition this way in the rest of verse 20. He says, but that with the full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And this word here for courage, it can be understood as a, as a kind of a, a bold speech. So Paul's not praying for the courage to just take it on the chin. No, he's praying for the kind of courage to publicly identify with Jesus, no matter what the consequences. And Paul isn't just praying that Christ will be honored. Why? Because Paul already knows that one day, Christ will what? A day is coming where Christ will be honored in the presence of all people, and all people will acknowledge that he is indeed Lord and King, right? You see, it's so easy to pray, oh Lord, show your glory. Let your truth be known. Let your grace be seen. But it's a whole other thing to pray, oh Lord, show your glory in the way that I live. Let your truth be known through me, my life, my body. Let your grace be seen in my actions, my conduct, my character. Listen, Christ will be exalted one day. That is a done deal. The question is, will Christ be exalted today through you? Now, that's something to pray about. And like Paul, may our ambition be that we will always lift up Christ in our lives. Listen, here's the deal. Our culture has defined for us what a life worth living looks like. But I would submit to you that it is a life that does not, will not, and cannot win in the end. Whereas Paul is showing us that a life worth living for Jesus Christ is a win-win situation. Notice this in your notes. Living for Christ is a life that wins. This is Paul's whole conclusion when he says in verse 21, for me to live is what? Christ and to die is gain. 
And so for Paul, both life and death are positive outcomes, which Paul goes on to explain in verses 22 through 26. This idea, how can life be or death be gained? We'll talk about that next Sunday. So you got to come back. But for now, Paul is simply declaring and summarizing his life motto for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul is saying, I can't lose. I can't lose in this situation. If I live, I win. And if I die, I gain. So what do you do with a person like that? How do you stop him? How do you hinder him? How do you discourage him? Because you can't let him live for he says to me to live is Christ, and you can't kill him, for he says to die is gain. It's as Paul says in Romans 14, 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. It's a win-win situation. We ought to rejoice. We have every reason to rejoice. Listen, I know we're going to get all excited Thursday night when the Chiefs play and they win. And man, Cheer them on, shout hallelujah, rejoice in that. But this is much better. This is something to rejoice in. This is the unstoppable mentality of the Apostle Paul. And it can be yours as well if we will live for Christ, if we will treasure Christ above all else. This is a life worth living. For this is a life that wins in life now and wins in death for eternity. And of course, the only reason this kind of life is worth living is because of Jesus Christ. Listen, if it were not for Jesus, we would have no life worth living. We would be helplessly and hopelessly condemned in our sins. But because of Jesus Christ, listen, because of his perfect life, because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection from the grave, we are now rescued from our sins and we are reconciled to a right relationship with God the Father through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And now as we wait for Christ's return for that day, we do so with joy in our journey, even in the face of difficult circumstances. This is a life worth living. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. And so as we prepare our hearts to participate in the Lord's Supper, let me encourage you to bend your ear to what Paul writes about our Savior, our worthy Savior, In Philippians chapter 2, listen to what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you confessed that 
Has there been a time in your life that you can point back to and say, that's when I confessed Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That's when I humbled myself and admitted I am a sinner and in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ, because I could not, cannot save myself. I cannot rescue myself from my own sins. Only Jesus Christ. Listen, if you haven't, today could be the day of your salvation. Would you bow your head for just a moment of reflection, a moment of prayer before we take the Lord's Supper? And I want to encourage you to use this moment of silence to reflect on your own heart for any sin that still needs to be confessed and forgiven in the grace of God. And to even offer a prayer of thanksgiving for what Christ did for you in his death and resurrection.